Welcome back to The Doctor is In with Dr. Nadia Saba. I'm Dennis Wadan, Dr. Saba's producer. This episode is part of our What Plants Crave series, where Dr. Saba speaks with growers, researchers, and other experts in controlled environment agriculture to get their insights about the direction of the industry and, of course, what exactly it is that plants crave. On today's episode, we're speaking to Dr. Mark Lovesred of McGill University. Dr. Lovesred is an associate professor at McGill, and he leads the Biomass Production Laboratory. His research program focuses on the development of bioprocesses, post-harvest processing, and improvements in plant growth environmental energy usage. Thank you for listening. The Doctor is in podcast. I'm Dr. Nadia Saba, and this is our special series, What Plants Crave. Many of you know my guest today. He can be found at cannabis industry events, CA science conferences. That was Dr. Nadia Saba interviewing Dr. Mark Lovesrud of McGill University for our series, What Plants Crave. If you haven't guessed it already, today's guest is Mark Lovesrud, Professor of Bioresource Engineering at McGill University in Montreal. Welcome, Mark. It's so great to have you on our What Plants Crave podcast. Thank, thank you for having me, Dr. Greenhouse. <laughs> I know that there's going to be so many people excited to listen to this podcast because you do make the circuit. You are around people in the cannabis industry and, and general horticulture and control environment ag uh, know who you are, and uh, we appreciate uh, your support and your research in this field. Tell us about how you got into horticulture and controlled environment agriculture and became the professor that you are at McGill. Okay, so I'm originally from Canada. I grew up in a small town outside of Edmonton in Alberta. We're known for a couple different things in that small town. One of them is the Sutter Boys, who are NHL hockey players. So seven boys, six of them made it pro in the NHL. So it's a good claim to fame. Plus they they grew up a couple of miles from where I grew up. So obviously we know each other. And we're also, we're in the oil and gas industry as well as agriculture. And that's kind of what we're knowing in that area. So I grew up on a a 5,000 acre farm or so, which in that part of the world is reasonably normal. And I have been farming and gardening basically since as, as soon as I could start to walk. I realized at a certain point, which was, I can actually almost come to the exact moment where I read a story in Popular Science in, it would have been in 88, 89, some point in that, where there was a story about something known as the salad machine, which was an idea put forward by a couple of professors or researchers at NASA about growing plants in space. And I thought it was the coolest thing. It was a short little story, basically saying we can grow plants and possibly we can grow them into, in space. And I'm like, well, that's the area I want to go into. I then didn't know how to do it, to be perfectly honest. So I then started searching for it. I started mechanical engineering, um, went through schooling in that, then went agricultural and bioresource engineering, and then saw a job application to work for NASA to grow some food. I applied for it, and in the end, I didn't get the position, but it did push me into a direction where I could go. Went and did a master's degree at, at Rutgers with Gene Giacomelli. So that was my foyer into that. I got to actually run into the the people who wrote that original story and they ended up being some of my mentors out of the program. So kind of a a good one. That is so cool. Yeah. So then, and then the cool thing about being at Rutgers at that point is we were affiliated with NASA. So I got to go down to Houston, got to meet all the people that are there. So the the Ray Wheelers, the Gary Studies, et cetera. And so I became friends with all these people 
which was awesome from my perspective. Got to see the original Hangar L where they had the breadboard project. It was a two-story um, habitat that they were trying to simulate grow, um, life on Mars or on the moon, where they could show plant growth systems and what the production capacity would be under a fully controlled environment. The, the hangar was torn down, um, so you can't see it anymore, which is kind of sad. Um, but I got to do some research there for a couple of weeks, which I thought was kind of cool. Very this was cool. pre-9-11, so even as a Canadian, I was given access to the base. I could wander around almost any place I wanted. And if you ever have a chance of wandering around Kennedy Space Center, they, they have all the old launch pads. And the history there is phenomenal from a space perspective. And I, I got excited. I thought that was the world I wanted to do. And I had the pleasure of getting hired on after that in Orbitech. Uh, which now is Sierra Nevada Corporation. And I was part of the original design team for, originally it was supposed to be, they built the biomass production system and it flew on the space shuttle. And then we were working on something known as plant research unit, which ended up not happening. But though that evolved into, through a bunch of other reasons, became the veggie plant growth system and became the advanced plant habitat. And so some of my base work and ideas and such made their way into those systems which I, I take great pride in. And I'm very proud of the work that I, I, all the team at Orbitech has done to allow these things to be um, basically be the forefront of plant growth systems. I'd say anywhere in the world, to be perfectly honest, just happens to be on the International Space Station, but their ability to control with the APH is probably second to none anywhere in that space. But then I went on and did a PhD, started University of New Hampshire, finished University of Tennessee, and got a PhD in plant physiology so I could understand how to grow plants out of these systems. So from there, I ended up getting a position at McGill and I wanted to work in controlled environments. I, I describe it as being kind of a opportune moment because I thought I was gonna be working with the Canadian Space Agency, possibly doing other things, um, greenhouses, which Montreal is known and Quebec is known for a very large greenhouse operation. So that was gonna be one of my areas of focus. Little did I know that urban agriculture and vertical farming was going to become one of the cool things of the world and that we would actually have legalization of cannabis would occur in Canada shortly thereafter, which I went from being kind of this niche player to becoming one of the cool kids, which wasn't intentional. It was purely just because fate came along and said, hey, guys, let's see what happens here. And they need experts. And yeah. the, one of the things I always tell the cannabis people is, Cannabis is an interesting plant, but it's still a plant and it behaves as a plant. And as long as we can control for those factors, we can do what a plant does. It's not a mythical creature. It doesn't have these magical powers. It is a plant. It just does some interesting things that is within the plant realm. So that's what we get to play with. Now, maybe after you harvest it, it has some magical powers. I don't sure, know. But, <laughs> sure, but that's on the medicinal side. That on the plant side, it's still a plant. I mean, you and I, it sounds like we have, we both uh, can claim that we were in the right place at the right time with the same niche interest that just became the cool thing to do. And yeah, here we are. I, I love that. And, and it's interesting to me that your path started with the popular science, the salad machine and growing plants in space um, and, and how much of the technology we have today started with the idea of trying to grow plants and grow our food in space, such as LEDs and controlled environments in general, um, at least very enclosed 
tight recirculating environments. Um, and, and we can talk about that uh, a little bit later. Um, what, what do you love about plants, Mark? Like, why? Well, why I'm, I, I'm a bit of a, people think I'm slightly crazy for this, but I believe that there's, uh, how do I want to describe this? And this is going to make me sound insane. I understand that. Uh, but the reason, I, I think plants have an awareness and there's an intelligence and there's different kinds of intelligence. And I understand that, like, they're not going to come out and say hi to me. They don't have that ability, but they, they have an awareness of, I believe, of people. So it's kind of like a dog knowing the, the smell or the, the voice of their, their owners. I think the plants have that kind of an awareness and plants have an ability to control things in their environment. And, and I use an example of why does somebody have a craving for strawberries? And everybody goes, well, because my brain's telling me I, I need to crave strawberries. And I'm like, well, why couldn't it be the plant telling you you should crave strawberries and making you do things for the plant? Go grow more strawberries kind of thing. And so there's this symbiotic relationship that we have with plants. And we're arrogant enough to think that we control them. And the more I work with plants, the more I'm positive they control us. And part of my job is to try to figure out how that's being done. And I also want to maximize them so they give me what I want too. So it is a symbiotic relationship, but they have this, it's an enormous power, but they work on a time frame that we're not aware of. Like we work on the seconds and the minutes and they work on the days and the years uh, kind of perspective. So they'll start producing something now, which will have a consequence six months from now, where by then we've forgotten like we're, it's an irrelevant to us, but then all of a sudden we're like, Ooh, wow, it did something. That's so cool. Now I, I, as a researcher, I have to go back and try to figure out what it was that happened at that point. And they're giving us signals and telling us stuff, but we're just not smart enough to understand this. So I'm trying to figure out what is it they're telling us and can we try to extract this information? It's easy to control temperature and light and say, okay, it's plants going to grow faster and it's going to produce this compound more, but there's a lot of other subtle cues in it. Kind of like when, if you ever have a pet, pet like a cat, the way they wag their tail is telling everybody something different. So if it wags one way, obviously they're saying one thing. If it wags fast, it's something different. Same with dogs. And so I see that with the plants. And I, I think it's uh, something we poorly understand. And it's something that we need to try to start to understand. And it, that gets me excited because then I get to play with all my other gadgets and the engineering side and the, the science and the, the controlled environments and stuff. And they're all part of the same factor. And I'm like, ooh, that's so cool. Let's go figure these things out. You're, I mean, there, I, I want to unpack so many of the things that you just said right now. Um, but, you know, just the last thing that you said about, you know, the technology and the gadgets to, um, to grow these plants and, and bring out the best in them. I mean, you are, that is what you're trying, trying to do. That is what we're trying to do in controlled environment agriculture really is to, to allow those plants to express the best of themselves, whether that's a, you know, a color or a taste, a, a sweetness like a strawberry, um, or, you know, as well as, as its growth and maximize its growth potential, um, as opposed to, and, and, and having a controlled environment agriculture uh, system, whether it's a greenhouse or a vertical farm or, or a, a spacecraft, uh, we are trying to create conditions that are most conducive 
to those plant development characteristics. We're not trying to say, hey, plant, you know, try and grow under this condition because, you know, that's what you have to live with. We're saying, no, we're going to create the condition that you like the most um, to express the best of yourself. Um, you know, one thing, though, that I, I wanted to make a comment on also is your idea that plants think in days and, and years where we humans might be thinking in seconds and minutes. And, and I want you to expand on that a little bit, because when I think about growers looking at data and they see this like sudden spike in humidity, right? That lasts 15 or 30 minutes, or they're trying to squeeze in a DLI within a 24 hour period. Can you talk a little bit about how the plant responds to instantaneous changes versus more long-term changes and accumulations over time? Yeah. So if we look at it from a plant perspective, because that's the obvious way to do it, don't look at it from the data that's coming at you. The plant has all the chemicals and the growth capacity and arguable whether or not there's a bit of a neurological response there too. So a kind of a chemical gradient, pH or whatever it is that's driving that. So they don't have the, the true neurological response like us. So if I take a pen and I poke it in the leaf, it, you can damage the, the cells and they'll release chemicals, but those chemicals move at a certain rate. It's not like me stabbing you with a knife and you feel it and you pinch back. They don't have that response capacity. And so they have the ability to fight these things either through production of secondary compounds, you could, uh, or you could have growth hormones being produced. And even in the fastest of responses, there's still, there's some that can respond within minutes. So we, we see that stomatic and close fairly quickly. So if you're dealing with big spikes of temperature or big spikes of light, the, the plant has an ability to try to have a fairly quick response, but it's still not instantaneous. It's still multiple seconds, 10 to 20 to five minutes kind of thing is some of their fastest response. In most cases, what they have to do is they have to start to produce some kind of a defense mechanism. So let's say they're getting eaten by an insect. They don't just release chemicals immediately. They have to change their chemical pathway to start releasing these chemicals that can protect themselves against the insect damage. If we look at it from a tree perspective, if there's a fire damage on it, it needs to produce more bark or more uh, woody material. That will take years in some cases for it to produce enough wood to defend itself against that event. And so if you're, if you're like a, a lot of the trees, like the, the ash yellowing disease or pine trees and such, elms, such like that, they just don't have the capacity to respond fast enough to the fact that an insect's burrowing into it because they, they just can't grow wood at that speed. Uh, and then the fungus gets in and there's all these other factors. So it has to be something that is more evolving with it. So if you do an in instantaneous spike, most cases, it's hard to say the plant responds to that one second or even 10 second kind of spikes. We know that that's almost an irrelevant from a plant perspective, but if you slowly do a ramp up, the plant slowly starts to adapt to these things. And we, we see it with cold tolerant plants or even heat tolerant plants that as you allow this slow ramp up in temperatures, it can deal with it. But if all of a sudden you'd go from, let's say uh, 20 degrees Celsius and drop down below 10 and you go, well, they should have cold hardiness. That never happens. They just don't have that capacity. So if you ever see people who like try to winterize plants, they're always putting them outside to allow that gradual change over multiple days to allow them to build up these. Basically, if we look at it from a, a morphological change within the plants, they're quite often changing from 
uh, high levels of trans and cis pro, um, proteins and lipid conversions. And so you need under hot temperatures, the, the, the cysts are fine, like the nice straight uh, lipid profiles. But once you get down into cold, you'll, they become fractures and they're too easy to leak out of the cells with that. So what we need to do is we need to transfer that growth pattern from the, the cysts, which are the straight to the kinked um, lipids, which allows for more flexibility in the cell wall rigidity. And that takes, that takes days at the fastest to allow this transition to occur. Once we get that transition, now they have the ability to adapt to that environment, but saying, well, I'm going to transition from this condition to this condition and plants will adapt. They don't have that capacity. Humans don't have that capacity. The way we do it is we just walk away, but plants don't <laughs> have fight that. or flight, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. So they, or we, but if you look at it from a, a food perspective, like I, I live in Canada and the foods that I eat in the summertime are usually light salads and foods like that. As soon as it gets down to minus 20, nobody I know wants to eat salads. We're after the high, high energy proteins and fats. So that's why the, the French have certain foods here in Quebec, like the creme brulees. And you start craving those in the wintertime because you need those high, higher calories so that you can produce enough heat to keep yourself from dying in this part of the world. And are, are, you, are you saying that having um, Thanksgiving and Christmas winter holidays and stuff isn't just an excuse to eat a bunch of food? There's actually yeah. like a biological reason for oh, that? Oh, completely, <laughs> completely. And we, you'll see it in the spring. Like I know California isn't going to see it quite as easily, but here in Canada, you'll see the transition of people slowly transition away from those heavy nut consumptions or heavy caloric consumption to lighter and lighter foods as we start moving into the summer. And then as, as soon as we start into the fall, all of a sudden you start having cravings for like peanut butter or heavier foods. All of a sudden, oh, I'm craving these things, which I'm back to the idea that maybe the plant is controlling me, but I also right. need it too. So. Right. That's so interesting. You know, I, something I love about talking to you is how cellular you get, how granular you get with with the plant and, and the mechanisms behind why the plant is doing what it's doing. One of my favorite things, I mean, there's a lot of things I like about plants as well, but you know, you can train a plant to be drought tolerant, right? Like you can start it when it's very young by, you know, keeping some water from it. And then when it grows up, it doesn't need as much water. You have conditioned it to, to be able to grow and produce and do what you want it to do with less water if you start it young. And so kind of what, what you're talking about, like having, you know, winterizing your crop, same kind of the same idea. You don't do that in a couple of days, but guess what? You can do it within one plant. Like you don't even need to necessarily breed a whole new crop. You can actually train a plant, acclimatize a plant over the course of its individual life to tolerate these different extreme conditions. Agreed. They're so cool. They're very adaptable. We just maybe shouldn't expect too much of them. I'm not sure I completely agree with that statement because we don't know what they're capable of. That's our biggest problem. Okay. So okay. True. There, there is certain things periodically that all of a sudden I'll have a student come to me and goes, did you know that it can do this? And I'm like, well, show me the data. And then we look at it and we're like, oh my God, like, I don't know if that's true. We have to repeat it, but it's still a moment where you're like, is the plant controlling this? Like that, that's, that doesn't make any sense. They shouldn't be able to do that, but then sometimes they do. And it's hard to tell and separate out 
the random data from the other one, but that's why I'm in science is because I get excited about those moments. Okay, I have to go completely off course here for a second. Do, do plants have a brain? So they don't have a, like a neurological system per se, no. There's people who argue that in the root zone of the plants, the, the, the fungi act as the brains. I'm not that person. I don't believe that even a little bit. I believe the plants are controlling the fungi and I'm probably going to get hate mail for me making that statement. It is symbiotic, but I think the plants are controlling the fungi, not the fungi controlling plant is what my personal opinion is. But there is a certain level of diffuse knowledge sharing within the plants. But the thing that also makes plants odd is that they also have an ability to isolate separate sections. So one branch doesn't always respond the other way as the other branches do. So if you shine light on certain wavelengths of light on one, one set of leaves and another plant on this one, guess what? They're morphologically different and they'll actually grow differently on the same plant. Are you serious? Yeah. And, we, and you can see that with them um, grafting. So people will graft different kinds of apples onto one system. Yeah. And all of a sudden, each one will behave a little bit differently. They're using the same rootstock, but we can we can also see that there's some extreme cases where, and this is an area I, I need to figure out because cannabis is one of the ones that they cite for this, is that the percentage of day length that you need to induce flowering, I'm not positive it's the same on both sides. So if we take the plant and flip to a, go drop down to a 12-12 or a 14-hour, all of a sudden it should go into flowering. But the, the first study that showed this basically took a bag and put it over one half of the plant, not on the other half, but the whole plant didn't go into that flowering event. And so I'm curious about what, how much of that communication occurs within the plant as well as within the zone. So obviously the branch is going to all, or that the node is going to all behave itself, but how much is shared between those nodes or branches is a question that I don't, I can't answer. And I know that there's people who will tell me that, well, it does more or less. It's different. And that we know that the auxins don't travel from one branch to the other. So the chemicals don't always make it through. So saying that there's a brain is a poor definition of it because it, it almost acts as their own independent entities, each branch with some sharing of resources. Wow. Plants are so cool. <laughs> Yeah. They're way smarter than us. They have to be. <laughs> <laughs> they are manipulating the hell out of us. That's for sure. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, bringing it back to controlled environment agriculture, I mean, why, why grow plants indoors? I mean, there's an obvious reason why you would grow plants indoors if you're going to space, because I would expect that wherever we go in space, whether it's Mars, the moon, or just outer space, that you can't grow a plant uh, in a vacuum or in an inhospitable environment. But why on earth? Why, why do we want to grow crops indoors? So, so from my perspective, a big reason is that I live in the north, so we get really cold. So I joke that when I'm in Edmonton, minus 40 isn't that cold. And it's not. We get down below that minus 40. I've, I've experienced almost minus 48 or minus 50. Like, it, that's cold. Uh, but then there's other people say, that's not really cold. I've hit Siberia. It's colder. But it's still cold. Plants don't like it that cold, even a little bit. There's a few that can handle certain parts of it. But as a whole, it's not an overly enjoyable environment. So, but we, we live in this part of the world, so we still need food. And I don't want to be dependent on California supplying me with all my food. So but we're the salad bowl. And you said you liked the concept of the salad machine. 
I realize that, but I like the idea of also growing it locally. So can I grow food here? And it depends on where you are within Canada, but we vary between four months of good solid winter to as high as, well, I won't go quite 12, but let's say 10-ish in some locations. And so if we have a population base that's there, there's certain regions of Canada that we have to fly food in for most of it, just because there's no way to truck it in or, uh, and it becomes complicated. So can we grow food in the farthest to north of Canada? So if you want to go Google a place, it's called Alert North or Alert Nunavik is one of the, the farthest north that we have within Canada. Not an overly large population up there, but can we produce food locally? Kind of like what they've done in the Antarctica with a couple of different projects on that. I won't say there's many people that live in those parts of the world, but there is Toronto, which has a reasonably good agriculture, but they still get cold. There's still four months of the year where they can't grow food at any, any significant level. Uh, Montreal is a little bit longer and then Edmonton's longer still for that. So can we grow food in these locations? The, the value of living in this is one, I like to go skiing and I like winter. So people would say, well, let's li all live in California. Well, I, you don't get quite the same winter experience as you do here. And our summers in some ways are second to none. Like there's, there's some of the most wonderful summers that you could ever have anywhere on the earth. I lived in Tennessee. I don't like their summers. Their winters are wonderful. I can deal with that, but their summers aren't nice. And so I don't want to live in air conditioning 100% of the time in the summertime. So I, I put up with cold so that I can enjoy my summers, but now I have to grow the food. And so that's why we need these other experiences and technologies so that we can do this. Now, now in Tennessee, though, you might also have the benefit of growing indoors, at least in an enclosed environment, because it is hot and humid in the summer. So they have the opposite extreme that you're having in Canada in the winter, right? Agreed. And, yeah. and so they're, they're, one of the things that we've been pushing for here, at least in my lab, is that there's always resources. So obviously, if you're on the ocean, you have a lot of water. Here, we if you're using LEDs, we still have to cool them in some form. But if it's minus 40 outside, guess what? Let's use the cold from outside to cool them off. But we also still get sunlight. Even when it's minus 40, we still have to vent a greenhouse to cool it down when the sun is on. I mean, out. Um, I'm glad you made that comment because I actually wanted to ask you about greenhouses in Canada. And you made the comment earlier that there's a lot of greenhouses in the Montreal area. I think that's is probably counterintuitive to a lot of people who don't live in a Northern climate, who think of greenhouses as being in California or Arizona or in the Sun Belt, at least in the US. Why do greenhouses work so well in Canada? Uh, a couple of different reasons. The biggest one is one, we have a population base that wants to consume this. If I'm here in Montreal, as well as elsewhere within Canada, we have a, a strong agricultural history. So the early settlers of Quebec were the early French that settled in this area, needed to be able to produce food. So we have a strong understanding that local food is of importance. We also have a governmental system that doesn't want to be importing from elsewhere. We also have this huge benefit that we have some of the largest hydroelectric power on planet Earth is located here in the Quebec area. And so we have some of the cheapest electricity that occurs. So the Quebec government, specifically for Quebec, and it's done elsewhere across Canada, but the Quebec government basically made an initiative in the 70s during the big oil embargo to try to start importing food. 
I mean, like not, not importing food, but producing local food. So there was a big push. And that was the early greenhouses with the double poly and the, the single span systems and such like that that started coming along. Kind of stabilized for the last few years. But as of, was it two years ago or so, Quebec has a mandate to try to double their greenhouse production in this province. And the, the question was, well, should we be going, aiming higher than double? And they go, doubling is a big number already. It won't make it self-sufficient, but it will take a large chunk out of it. And they're giving a reduced electrical rate specifically to people who have greenhouses of almost any size. They said they had to be large, but they keep reducing what large is. So last I heard was, well, I can't go quite down to a thousand square feet, but they are willing to go down to these reduced, which is basically cost plus whatever the production cost was. So they're not making a profit on it. They want it to be for production level. with the, either the, the ability to supply local food or export some of this food also. And th- their goal is to increase our food capability through greenhouses and possibly through controlled environment spaces beyond that also. And so that's an ongoing debate of how big is this going to get? And I'm seeing it. I, I've been driving down when I drive into work, there's three new greenhouses that have popped up in the area where I am. So I'm like, okay, so that people are taking this as an initiative, right. which means that I'm going to have work for the rest of my life. So life's good. Yay. <laughs> and maybe I will too. Yeah. <laughs> if it gets too hot down here in California, because we haven't seen rain in two months and it's getting a yeah. little scary. Um, oh, oh, and so as a last point on that, we also have a lot of sunlight. So by being minus 40, you don't get clouds in the sky. Uh, we get we get not quite as much, we get shorter days, but we get a lot of sunlight at that point. So we still need supplemental lighting, but it's still more of a heating issue than it is a lighting issue. In the summertime, or I say the fall and winter, that, I mean, sorry, fall and spring is when we get the cloud cover and we need the supplemental lighting more so than in the wintertime. Are you serious? Well, if you look at it as a total DLI, in the middle of winter, because of our short days, we have issues. So December, January are a little bit short. But they're warm. December is warmer in this part than it is, um, obviously, January and February are the coldest. But by the end of February, we're getting almost enough light to drive our system. We just need a little bit of extra. But then we start getting cloud cover. And so that's why we have the, the extra light systems is so that we can make it through the cloud cover period until the summer where we get all the light and all the heat now starting to come in. So we're playing with these two different factors, temperature and cloud cover, which is reducing some of our light levels. But in Alberta, it's amazing how much light we get in, even when it's minus 40 out, like the moment the sun's up, it's bright and we're venting the greenhouse to cool it down until the sun goes down and then it hits minus 40 and you have to bump the heat in to maintain that environment. Somewhere where the greenhouse effect is beneficial and in full force. I don't think people realize that that's where the term came from necessarily. And that that's why you do see a lot of greenhouses in Northern climates that are sunny, right? Dutch greenhouses in the UK and Canada in these places that we would consider cold. But if you put them in a sunny place, then you can take advantage of that greenhouse effect and, and just the natural sunlight doing the heating for you. When it does get cold, when the sun does go down, I mean, you mentioned that electricity is cheap. Are you using electric heating or are you using natural gas heating? And how do you reduce your, your heating requirements in when it's negative 40 degrees? For a straight up greenhouse, we do it. There's a couple of ways to try to save the heat. One is they do thermal blankets or the, the equivalent of like a really fancy shade cloth on top to try to trap in the heat event out of this. And this is one reason why the indoor agriculture system is 
beneficial is that we can start to then maintain all that or a semi-closed greenhouse would be the other way to describe it where you have high sidewalls that are insulated but just the top is and then you pull that thermal blanket across to trap the heat in so that's one it depends on what region you are in Canada so there's some regions that still are using coal obviously they're trying to move away from that there is some that use oil natural gas is quite common propane is still quite common and electrical heating in most of those cases, we're probably going to go to electrical, natural gas or electrical. But there was a push about 15 years ago to try to go to some form of geothermal. So this would be shallow well or geo exchange, as they, they like to call it now. Because using the electrical demand when it's minus 40 is just too high of a load for some of the, the power producing companies to handle that much heat to try to maintain a, a greenhouse. And so the first place they want to cut off, cut off is a greenhouse. So you're like, okay, so what can we use? So we've been doing, well, I've not done it, but uh, some of my colleagues have where we use the, the geo exchange is trying to amplify up that, or we use wood and um, biomass as a heating source. So there's some huge operations that are maybe not quite a, uh, how big was that? hundred thousand square feet operations, maybe bigger than that, that are using huge wood chip operations to try to heat water and circulate it through these situations. And I don't know if you came, I think you came on the field trip for that. That had the huge biomass boilers. And I think they were using construction waste, wood waste. They were using wood chip, wood chip, and they could use bark also, depending on where that was. There, There is some in, I know in Ontario that are using waste wood from construction sites also for this. And we claim it's a renewable. I know there's still argument on some of that, but that's what we use to try to take away from some of that electrical cost, because obviously at minus 40, we're, we're probably demanding too much out of the grid at that point. Hydro-Quebec says they can handle it. I've chatted with them about it, but they still want some auxiliary kind of heating because obviously if the power goes out, you've lost your whole crop. So we have to have some mechanism to try to defend ourselves against that possible loss of power. And you can't use obviously coal and you don't want to have a big backup power supply that just can supply that. They just don't. Right. <laughs> kind of beside the point, right? Kind of negates uh, the benefits that you had uh, with some waste, waste feed, waste feed. Yeah. Yeah. yeah we, we call it residual. There material. you go. Thank you. So is the Canadian government also helping with a fully enclosed controlled environments or are they completely focused on greenhouses? And, and just to piggyback that, what do you see as the future of indoor farming in Canada? A little nuance on that. The Canadian government, agriculture falls under both federal and provincial jurisdictions in Canada, but the implementation almost always occurs at the provincial level, not at the federal level. Federal level has slightly different. So it's a nuanced difference. So they can offer in, at a federal level, they can offer incentives, but they're usually piggybacked on the provincial. So each province has their own mandate. So the biggest greenhouse production areas are obviously Ontario is our biggest, Quebec and then British Columbia. I think Quebec is still larger by a fair bit than BC, but BC has a fair bit down in the Fraser Valley River area. So outside of Vancouver uh, and then Alberta and then kind of Saskatchewan, you can migrate yourself across those. And so each one of those have different mandates on it. Uh, Hydro-Quebec as our, as our supplier of electricity has also been mandated through the provincial government to do these things. So there is, there is initiatives to try to drive this, but it, it occur, occurs more often than not at the provincial level. 
And the greenhouses that they're supporting it to double the number of greenhouses, that's specifically for food production, right? So, so predominantly horticulture crops, I would say yes. Okay. Um, There seems to be a, uh, I think there's a bit of a fuzziness. Hydro-Quebec will tell me there isn't quite this fuzziness. They don't want to support cannabis, but that being said, they're giving some preferential rate to some of the cannabis producers also. And ornamentals for um, flowers and such are taking advantage of some of it also. So it seems to be, it's not uniform. I won't say across all of them, but they all, there's ways that companies can take advantage of all these if they need to. Um, but the, the primary focus is on food. Yeah, because I was wondering too, if some of that is because I don't know how many vegetable growers, especially tomato growers switched over to cannabis or have slowly let cannabis infiltrate their existing greenhouse facility. But I also wonder if some of this initiative is to sort of backfill in some of the, the, the lost greenhouse production to cannabis and encouraging people to come back to vegetable production or to have both types of production available. So I've heard of all cases where there's been a few cases where, um, a tomato producer got shifted over to cannabis production and is remaining on cannabis production. I've heard of a few cases where the cannabis production wasn't profitable because there's a whole nuance to that within Canada yeah, yeah. and are now planning on shipping back to food production really? side of things. Yeah. And so there seems to be cannabis is profitable, but you have to consider it as a commodity like a, and it's not, obviously the retail prices are somewhere around $10 a gram is what they're, they seem to be going for give or take dollars on that this but if you're selling it at anything more than let's see i'd say if you're over two dollars a gram for sales you're not going to be profitable at all unless you're like the really top end stuff most of them are aiming to be less than 85 cents a gram and some of them are pushing even below that in some cases so if you can make 85 cents you seem to be a profitable company if you're not hitting that point then you're you're probably losing money hand over fist out of this so, so, and if, if you look at it from a tomato production standpoint, and this, this is kind of dated values, you needed to be producing it at, let's say one cent a gram. So for tomato production, maybe. Oh my God. So, so there, there's still a factor of that, but I, the rumor is, is that you can get low enough to get down into that cannabis production down into that 20 cent range, possibly, uh, which means you're now in the same commodity level as tomatoes are. Strawberries are obviously higher. Um, you can produce if you, you'll be more than that price for that. And peppers and cucumbers, etc., I'll fall into that. So that's why I'm I back to my original statement that cannabis isn't this mythical plant. It's just in the upper bound of the plant. It's not this log function, more profitability. It's still just more profitable than tomatoes are more profitable than cucumbers. But depending on what market you're chasing or how good you are at it, then not everybody has been successful that we do have some bankruptcies mm. in the cannabis world. Yeah. Um, you know, because you're in Canada, you're not uh, under the same sort of federal restrictions that we are here in the U S uh, preventing uh, good science, academic research on the cannabis plant. What is some of the research you guys have done or, or has d- been done in Canada in general by some of your colleagues um, that uh, would be interesting to our growers and our community here that we may not be hearing about or, or, or learning 
about? Um, so we've been trying to, so not just me, but there's, we, we seem to have people across Canada that are, are working on it. So there's some groups out in the Maritimes. There's a few in Quebec, obviously, me being one of them. Ontario has it, even BC, you name it. There's a little bit seems to be being done in all the places. Lighting was one of our big ones. And it's because it's one of the big energy requirements. If you're growing indoors, light has to be managed out of this. Uh, I know a few people that are doing a bit of work with it. Um, HVAC kind of control systems because I will not say that and we've discussed this a lot that the HVAC systems for us are overly good they're they're high energy intensive systems even when it's minus 40 outside we're still pumping well actually minus 40 you have to add a bit of heat but at minus 20 we're finding that we're, we're cooling which doesn't make a lot of sense so we're using these these systems not as efficiently as they should be so how do we how do we try to balance these things a little bit better a lot of it came out of Colorado because that they were the first to obviously legalize and scale up. And so they then migrated up to us and we were realizing that some of them just weren't good systems, at least not for us. Might work well in Colorado, but aren't good for us. The LED work, there's been a fair bit out of Guelph that has been looking at what's the impact of different wavelengths. Um, and so the, the, the groups out of Guelph has looked at, well, what happens if I add blue light or green light? What's the, the change in the cabinoid profiles or terpene profiles that are being produced out of these things? There's been a lot of nice work that's been done on that. We also have looked at how do temperature and nutrient profiles seem to impact things. So if I change my nitrogen or phosphorus, uh, we're piggybacking on some of the work out of Israel and Spain, which is also seems to be producing a fair bit of data on this. Think we're going to surpass them actually because there's only a few players in that and we seem to have at least a good 10 across canada that are doing it so we're, we're working our way through these things i've been doing a bunch of post-harvest handling projects lately because i i'm bothered by the fact that we like to do air drying of cannabis it's one of the very last plants that seem to be an air dried plant most of them we either do freeze drying or vacuum drying or almost any other type of system. So why is cannabis special that we want to air dry it and then go through this curing process, which sure works, but I won't say is scientifically proven at any level. So is there ways that we can push this faster, quicker, better, especially if we're going to try to control bacterial loads or um, fungi and things like that on it, we have to get better at this because I know a bunch of companies that claim that they, well, they, they cured it properly. And then we look at the bacterial loads and they're way too high. So, and especially for somebody who's immunocompromised, you can't be providing them a cannabis product that has high levels of phytotoxins or bacterial loads. It's just not allowed. So can we clean up this or provide standards for some of these things? So we're, we're trying to cover the range. I, I belong to a, or actually I'm the director of a group known as the QAQCC, which is quality assurance and quality control for cannabis. It's a training group here in Canada where we're training graduate students, masters predominantly, but a few PhD, as well as undergraduates and trying to develop standards. We're working with Health Canada, as well as a bunch of industry partners, trying to come up with what is the best standard for this. And in some cases, it, it is what's been done as part of the historical methodologies. But in some cases, we're like, I always, when I was told the first time that people will stick a rusty nail in a plant to improve cannabinoid production, I'm like, okay, let's try stop doing those things. Why would that work? <laughs> the only thing I could think of was we're trying to increase the iron content in the plant, but oh I won't goodness. say the plant is overly happy by it. So, 
It's it's almost like you anticipated a question I was going to ask you, but what, but then decided not to, which is what is some of the best or worst advice you've ever heard given to a grower? Um, and the I rusty think nail one is that. a brilliant one. That's a great one. <laughs> the, the, the other one that I, I was I always wanted to push on, and this is through my research, and it's finally now starting to be accepted. Everybody always said, well, blue light induces vegetative growth and red light is used for cannabinoid production. And I'm like, I don't know any research that supports that. Every other plant I've worked with does it the opposite. Red light is used for vegetative growth and blue light seems to induce secondary compound production. And so then I talked to Bruce Bugby at Utah and I go, is there anything like, am I wrong? And he goes, no, no, no. It's just, they're not there yet. I'm like, okay. And slowly the industry is now flipped over. And it, I won't say all of them are quite full accepting of it, but we are seeing that with some of the, the new lights that are coming out that they're, they're marketing them towards these other perspective. But we know that red light drives photosynthesis. Blue light, eh, maybe not quite as good as we thought it should be, but it does drive the secondary compound production, which is really good at terpenes. Maybe not quite so good at cannabinoids, but we're still working on what those ones are. So we're trying to figure that out. Making that conclusion about blue and red light because you will see like ceramic metal halide lights in a vegetative room, and then you'll see high pressure sodium lights traditionally anyway in in a flowering room. So you have the more blue light in the veg and the more red light um, in in flower. Do you think it also could be if maybe it's not an actual light spectrum thing? Do you think it has to do with light intensity? that metal halide might be 600 or 700 watts and then you have an 18 hour photo period or whatever you want to accumulate that light but high pressure sodium is driven by trying to push as much light and have a higher dli in flower do you think it's not really a spectrum thing but and i do think it's a spectrum but i think we're paying attention to the wrong spectrum yeah so i i I am a big proponent of amber light. So right around 595, I find that when I shine that wavelength on my plants, they do high vegetative growth. Most people go, well, they elongate a lot. Sure. But at low, low light levels of 595, you get elongation. But we've published a few papers on this. It's amazing how we get almost direct carbohydrate production. That's it. The plant is just kicking out carbohydrates as fast as it can when you shine amber light on a plant. We don't get secondary compounds. Our stress response proteins are almost nothing in the plants, like shockingly low. Um, so the plant basically doesn't consider it to be a threat. And backtracking a little bit, light is a threat to plants. So they spend most of their time trying to defend themselves against light. Blue light is the worst. Like that's what they're, that, the reason why they produce anthocyanins and a lot of these other compounds is a defense response. That's why they're doing it. We call them secondary compounds and they taste good and are wonderful, but that's why blue light is, is scary for a plant. So it tries to defend itself against They call it natural sunscreen. Exactly. It, we just happen to like it as a human, but amber light seems to bypass this and it produces high amounts of carbohydrates, bypasses all the pigments. So there's like a window in that, in that yeah. amber light range where it all gets through? Yeah, it appears to. Amber is like orange, right? I'm, I'm thinking, like yellow, you said, 595. Yellowy, yellowy so I'm thinking, orange, yeah. Okay, okay. Yellowy orange, yeah. It's just not as pretty to say orange is amber. <laughs> yeah, well, it, the reason why we started calling them amber was we got some LEDs, and that's how they were marketing them was amber LEDs. 
So nice. I just, I thought it was kind of a cute name for it. So I've kept using it. So right. And, right and, it, and it elicits that image of a mosquito in, you know, an amber piece of amber turning into a dinosaur exactly. in Jurassic Park. So yeah, yeah, yeah of <laughs> it's very sci-fi, sci very scientific. Yeah. So, I mean, this, you know, I want you to talk about light for a little bit. I know so many people are so curious about light and I'm glad you brought up amber light. Um, can you also talk about PAR and, and sort of the widening of the PAR spectrum? I know it's, it's controversial. I know it will take a lot to convince people that it's not just from 400 to 700, that it could be, there could be benefits beyond those limitations. Can you just talk about that a little bit and what's driving that idea? Can do. Um, so so if you go back to the original understanding of how we, we look at how plants utilize light, we can go back all the way. Like most people are aware of McCree's curve, but he wasn't the first by any stretch. There was at least a half a dozen people that had worked on, on light before that point, Hoover and Bully, et cetera. And you see photosynthetic active results down into the UV. So not sure UVB, I haven't seen any positives on that, but we see responses as you move up through the UVA you get into the blue, you get higher photosynthetic activity out of it. Then it seems to dip down in the green. Then it has this really nice peak based on McCree and based on our work right at that 595. Then it dips down again. So good across 660, which is your, your reds. Then it dips down in that 680 and then it kind of comes back up again. And then it crashes violently, but it, it still does a little bit under monochromatic single wavelength perspective. It'll push slightly past 700. I mean, slight um, out of this. But if you're doing multiple spectrum, so more than one wavelength of light, adding wavelengths. Oh, so, and so at that point, basically McCree came along and said, we need to define par as between 400 and 700. And it was because it was simple. It wasn't because it fit that curve. It has that kind of loopy little kind of double, double loop on it. Um, but it fit most of it. It catches 96% of all photosynthetic activity, covers within that range or so. And, and so also something you said that is key is monochromatic light. Correct. I mean, that's yeah. one wavelength. So he literally were tracking light one wavelength at a time. Yeah, well, no, he didn't do it that. He wasn't quite that. He did it as okay. 25 nanometers wide with a filtering system on it. So okay. it was, it was a width like this. And then it has this kind of funny bell curve to it. And then he walked over and he did 14, I think it was 14 of them or so um, points across this whole okay. thing. And that's how he generated that curve. But it was just one yeah, segment just of light. If he had LEDs, yeah. he would have done it with LEDs back in the Correct. day. Okay. Yeah. And, and we've been trying to replicate that some of it in our lab. And so we're seeing our similar type curves out of that. Cool. So and as you're, and you catch a little bit in the blue and you catch the, the other ones that are um, into the UV and then you can catch the other ones as you push into the red. Um, Bruce Bugby at Utah State started looking at something known as the Emerson effect. So obviously Emerson was the one that originally found it. And he showed that if you add a little bit of uh, far red past 700 to about 750 or so, you can actually enhance growth of the plants. So if you have a background light, let's say of a metal halide, and then you add a little bit of far red, the two of them seem to result in an increase in, in pr productivity of the plant. And 
if you did it just as the far red by itself, it, you wouldn't get any photosynthetic activity. And, but if you add it into another lighting system, then you get this linear increase uh, out of it. So basically like if I, I'm gonna be producing, let's say at 10, if I add 11 units of brighter, so an increase irradiance level to 11, I get this increase of let's say 1%. And then we can walk our way through that. If I add, instead of increasing to 11, I add one unit of my far red into it. I seem to go to 11 also. But if I shine just the far red by itself, I don't get that same response. So the proposal for this is something known as the EPAR, which is an increasing of the spectrum from, instead of going from 400 to 700, we go from 400 to 750. So we add that 50, but you can only do it if you already have a light source between 400 and 700. If you just wanna add more, just have the 700 to 500, I mean, sorry, 700 to 750, that doesn't actually, isn't gonna benefit the plant unto itself unless you have this background lighting already present. So could you, so, so growers don't go out there and just buy light that, that produces light from 700 to 750. You're not going to like your results, but if, I mean, how much background other light do you need? I mean, if you just looked in, in terms of 10, right. And, yeah. and you had a ratio, right. A percentage one, you know, 10 to hundred percent or something. I mean, could you have 10% background light and 9% seven fifty, 90% 750, or is it nine? The other way around 50 50 what what i've seen bruce bugby publish on it was the other way around so we have nine of, of natural light between 400 and 700 and then 10 percent of the addition he, he's still working on it so i know he's trying to figure out what is that max level i don't know what it is honestly um you'd have to chat with him about what that number is but it's not i don't based on my own gut and what i've seen so far i won't say that it's the other way around that you can have nine units of far red and one unit of background lighting. It doesn't work that way. It has to be the other way around. And the, the advantage that people have on this, and we're going to get to this point at some point, and I don't know if we're there yet. Right now, we typically choose the red and the blue because they're the highest efficacy or the most efficient at producing light. If the far red is also an exceeding and can be in some cases can be quite an efficient lighting system, then we can merge them together and basically get the cheapest photons of light per whatever light system we want. And so we get to start to tailor them, not just based on the wavelengths we're after, but also what's the cost, do a cost breakdown on it. Technically, we, we have a hard time growing a plant under pure blue light. You can do it. Plants, I won't say, are overly happy about it. But under pure red light, they seem to be more happy out of it. Under pure amber, I get crazy good growth, but they're not, I won't say they're they're sweet, so they taste good. But if you're after secondary compounds, it's not an overly good one to chase on that. Obviously, you need to, there, there is a balancing and that's where those light recipes start to come in and people prefer one versus the other. Um, but understanding what those driving factors are still, still a, a cutting edge area of research that I won't say we have a good understanding of. Uh, and there's still arguments that are gonna have to be made both at the academic level before it even gets to the in industrial level. So with far red, helps with growth um, and beyond the 700 uh, nanometer uh, threshold gets you more growth. Uh, less than 400 in the UV down to UVA range, um, does that then also help with maybe not growth, but the secondary compound production? That's what it, it appears. Um, we just published a paper that I won't say was 
all it's not there's a little bit of our data in it but most of it is kind of a summary of other people's and shows that as you add uv into it you can increase certain secondary compounds so and, and secondary compounds are the terpenes for cannabis are the terpenes um etc out of it um cabinoids D still up for debate whether or not they're as big a driver as they are we see maybe one being excited in one study, but then in a different study, it doesn't see that one. So let's say we choose something like 420 and we can say, well, THC is being excited and increased on this. But then we go to a second study and it says, didn't see it at all. So then now we're like, okay, so what's happening? Maybe it's a different um, cultivar variety or something right. that's happening, different environmental conditions are impacting that could be temperature effect, could be nitrogen, could be whatever it is. We don't know, but there, there's probably a confounding effect between not just the, the wavelength of light, but also these other factors. And it's always been one of my fears is that we'll find out that wavelength impacts nutrient levels, which it does, but it's actually going to impact it more violently. And then we have to go back and redo all of our studies because guess what? Phosphorus is an uptake using this one wavelength. So now we got to get rid of that wavelength and discover what it is. We haven't found that, but that's one of my great fears of the world is that we're going to, somebody's going to publish this paper and we're like, oh, damn. now what am I supposed to do? I got 50 more years trying to just solve this question. So, right. Um, and I'm assuming, I mean, this extended par, whether it's into far red or down into uh, UV, that, that those same results are true regardless of the plant. So, if we thought about terpenes for basil, I mean, would, would we expect the same sort of result? Yeah. So in our lab, we, and I know a bunch of people that have done this, we knew um, medical cannabis was going to be legalized at some point or cannabis was going to be legalized. So we started playing with similar type plants and the two plants we played with were basil and hops, uh, hops because they're close relative basil, because it is similar trichome development and secondary compound de generation. So, and we are seeing that and people have been publishing on those ones showing that we do see these kind of shifts occurring. We, it, we're just still early in the research phase for doing it on the, on the cannabis. What is, um, I mean, when, when we talk about far red light, one thing that kind of pops into my head is the potential opportunity to save energy in lighting by having lower energy wavelengths of light in the red versus the blue range. I don't know if that's necessarily true, especially if the majority of that light still has to be down in, in our traditional uh, range. What are some of the energy efficiency strategies that you would like to see implemented in any controlled environment ag facility, whether it's a greenhouse or indoor or cannabis or tomatoes? What are some things that, that you're seeing that are working really well? What are some energy efficiency measures that people aren't doing that you're like, oh man, this is such a big opportunity that, that any grower could be implementing right now? Um, and I bet you have a million. Sure. I, I'm still aiming small because I'm still arguing with these companies and people to do some of the basics things. I want everybody to have a uh, light meter. That's a good one. Yeah. Yep. And, and collect the data and people go, well, it's not optimized yet. Honestly, don't care. Start collecting as you're, if you're starting up a new building, the moment you turn on the lights, take a reading. It's not hard. Some of these light meters aren't all that bad. I've been purchasing them from most of the, the main players. So 
if, if it measures in micromoles per meter squared per second or measures par, even if you want to measure them in watts, I'm willing to accept that. Still see some people play around with foot candles. I hate that. I'll yell at you anytime I see you and report on that because it makes zero sense to do that. So literally just taking readings and monitoring this. Can you have an aspirated temperature and humidity probe in your, in your growth space? Are you will, willing to measure your airspeed moving across your plants? Are you willing to measure these things? And How does measuring these variables save the energy? Two ways it will happen. You'll take a light reading and you go, I want a level of, let's say, 500 micromoles of light. You go into one corner and guess what? It's 2,000. You're like, why the hell is it 2,000? Well, because we stuck a whole bunch of lights in this corner and we're sitting at 2,000. But we wanted 500. Let's rearrange the lights. Like we don't need four within three feet of each other. So now all of a sudden I, I've reduced my energy load and I haven't even done anything. Literally just spread my lights properly. Or I'll run into some case where people come up to me and goes, I don't know why my yield is so off right now. Take a light reading and I'm like, you're getting 100 micromoles of light here. They're like, no, no, these are brand new lights. Still not what my reading is telling me. And they go, but the power consumption is the same thing up in my my light fixture. I'm like, well, then obviously you have a crappy light. So let's fix this. So measure light out, measure power coming in, at least have a base level of this stuff. I've seen people who are still hand watering cannabis, which if it's a 10,000 plant operation, you do the math, like that's insanity. We have to automate and track and have these computer levels. People are like, well, I'm going to bring in an AI to optimize this. We don't even water our plants properly. So how are we going to be able to track these things? Like, I know this, uh, we want to come up with these big revolutionary statements, but I'm like, let's just start tracking the, the data. Like I can solve nine, nine out of 10 problems in most grower operations by just going in with a bunch of sensors, taking water samples, going, guess what? You have stopped adding calcium into your water mixture for your fertilizer. If we add calcium, your plants will perk back up again. And they're like, what? I'm like, the water sample says it isn't there. So I don't know what you've been doing, but let's start adding that properly. So monitor these things. Yeah. In terms of sensor, I, I have a couple of, of stories that to, to relate to this. One is, you know, if I think about an indoor facility and I'm going to talk about, you know, my favorite subject, which is climate management. And, um, you know, recently I had a, a potential client and we were, you know, talking about the project and they were struggling with humidity control and temperature control and their plants weren't yielding. And, you know, so I was going to try to help them troubleshoot, um, you know, the air distribution and humidity control and everything. And in the conversation, uh, I asked them where their sensors are located. And they said, oh, they're on the wall, and, you know, to control the HVAC system. I said, well, they should probably really be you know, over the plant canopy. You want it as close to the plants that you're growing as possible. And that wall, if it's an exterior wall, is going to register something completely different than the room. Um, you know, like sometimes the sensors controlling HVAC systems are in the return duct, which is not necessarily the same as, as over the plant canopy. So I didn't hear from them for a few weeks. And then I checked in. I was like, hey, how are things going? You know, are you still interested? And they said, well, we moved the sensor from the wall to the top of the canopy and our room is beautiful. Exactly. And I was like, oh my God, that's so awesome. I'm so glad to hear that. And when I think about energy, you know, in terms of sensor placement, you know, if I think about 
climate management, you know, a lot of these warehouses and, and greenhouses, right? They have this big space above the lights or in the attic where there are no plants. And, and imagine, you know, having your sensor 10 feet above your plant where all the heat has accumulated that air conditioner is going to be working so hard trying to manage an environment that your plants are not, don't care about, are not experiencing. Yeah. You want to be controlling the environment right at the plant. And so, you know, if by just bringing that temperature sensor down to the plant level, how much energy can you save because you're not registering a really high temperature or maybe a really cold temperature on an exterior yeah. wall in Canada. Um, and, and to your point about light, you know, when I first started my, my PhD at the U of A, uh, Dr. Giacomelli uh, told me, go out and measure the light levels. So my, the, my research greenhouse was being built when I arrived on campus. So I measured light levels before the plastic was on the roof. I measured the light levels when the plastic was put on the roof. I measured the light levels when all the, um, all the wires were strung up for the shade screen. And then I measured the light levels again when the shade stream screen was uh, you know, installed. And then I measured the light levels again when the plants were in. And oh my God, to see every step of how each of those things affected the incoming and net solar radiation in the greenhouse was mind blowing. Those wires that support the, the, the shade screen without the shade at all dropped the incoming solar radiation down at the canopy level by 10% just by itself, just wires. Yeah. I was astonished. So I love that tip of, starting a new facility, start measuring the light right away and see how it's impacted over time. Yeah, I full agree. And so that's why I want people to track this. There is improvements, like we talked about LEDs. These are improving, maybe not quite daily, but close to it. Um, most people are still playing with double-ended HPS, which are still very impressive. Uh, I still, I, I'm not telling anybody that they have to choose one or the other you can choose whichever one you want i still think they have good efficacy doing temperature management in it there's hvac systems or you could use swamp coolers whatever you want there if you want to push it up that extra one or two percent sure maybe five ten in some cases but proper sensors proper tracking shockingly high 10 20 30 sometimes almost 100 percent improvements just by being able to track my nutrient levels are the ones that I'm always shocked with where people are like, well, I've been using the same nutrient mixture forever. I'm like, have you ever taken a water sample? No. I'm like, take a water sample. I, I, I do it almost daily with my students. I know they cost around 20 some bucks to 30 bucks, but it's going to save you so much just knowing this base information. And you'll find that, well, maybe I, my, one of the oddest things I discovered when I first did my master's, if you're running a pump that has some level of recirculation in it, and you have a single piece of brass, and I mean single as in like a little bushing someplace, and you're recirculating, you start getting copper and zinc toxicity. And it's not obvious to see, but by taking a water sample at the beginning and the end, you'll see that. And then you'll go, oh, I shouldn't have had that piece of brass hiding in there. And I've seen them as bushings inside pumps. So you have to rip the pump across to see that little piece. And we know that's a concern even with like condensate collection from HVAC yeah. systems, especially that that soldering 
uh, metal uh, might be leaching out some toxic metals. And so, you know, the question is, what is the, okay, so we're saving water by recirculating it, but then how do we need to process that water or treat that water so that we want to send it back to our plants? And, and I don't think people even realize necessarily, like even if they're getting their water from a utility that the water quality changes seasonally or, or monthly because the water source even changes um, from winter to summer. Yeah, we just got a new new set of data from the, the, the city of Montreal's water supply. And I'm surprised at how much calcium's in it. I wasn't expecting that amount. The chlorine I was expecting and all the other materials I was expecting, but the calcium was like, wow. I don't have to add quite as much calcium, which was a good thing because then I'm like, why am I just wasting my fertilizer for yeah. no good reason on that? I think it also depends on where you're located, um, like in the line of, of, of that water utility. We had um, a project and they did a, a water sample there on site. They had, they had received the, the water quality report, you know, generally for the utility, but then they, they did their due diligence and took a water sample at their site and discovered that there was no chlorine or fluoride in the water. And when they die, and they're like, this is weird. Like why, you know, I mean, maybe there's a little chlorine, but there's no fluoride, which they were super excited about. And so they did a little bit more investigating and discovered that they were at the end of the line. And so by the time the water reached them, it had all precipitated out or, or had, you know, vaporized and they yeah. weren't getting it. If Good you're really them. close to your water treatment plant, yeah. You might be getting more things than if you're at the end of the line. Yeah. So I don't know. We could go in so many directions, but I mean, do you consider CEA in general collaborative or competitive? I mean, from where you sit, you're you're not necessarily a grower or an investor, or you know, you definitely have a vested interest in this industry. But what do you see from sort of the outside looking in? Do you think it's competitive or collaborative? I say it's a little, I actually think it's a bit of both, to be perfectly honest. Um, so obviously, if people want to get the, the big scoop, they, they, they are not going to tell other people what that is for a while. But there's good organizations that are willing to share information. And so I, I belong to a couple of them, the NCR 101 group, the ASAB group. ASHS, um, so the Hort Societies also. And then there's a bunch of the, the cannabis societies that are doing it. I find the people who are, mo are investors keep thinking that they need to look at it from purely the Silicon Valley, which is I control all these things. And so as such, I'm not going to share anything with anybody. It's funny because I've toured enough cannabis facilities that I walk into one and I'm like, they have their HVAC system like literally sitting w within the other plants. So the plants are growing around the system. And I'm like, okay, so, and just to let you know, I would recommend not doing this. And if you do do it, call me in three years when you're going to replace them all, because then yeah, we can solve exactly. the problem. Uh, I've also been in some places that go, this is such cutting edge research. You're not allowed to see this. I'm like, okay, great. And then I find out three years later, well, we have to rip it all out. We don't know what, what they did, honestly. So in those cases, if they would have just asked, we would have said, well, maybe you shouldn't go down that road. And it would have saved them millions, tens of millions of dollars in a few of these companies' cases where because they're being so secretive, they're hurting themselves. I'm not expecting that they're going to tell me all their trade secrets. I don't right. need to know all of them. But at least the big things like 
don't do that. That's stupid. We're quite good at sharing. Right. I, I like wish that me, we could even start there. Like just what, what failed and just at least tell people don't do this. Yeah. Right. Like you don't have to tell them the secret sauce of, of what made you super successful. Just don't let everyone go down the, the bad path that maybe you took. Right. So that we can at least learn from each other a little bit. Yeah. Well, I, I, I found it it's a couple of conferences and I, I have a lot of good friends through those. I, I want to give a plug to Ed Harwood who passed away at Arrow Farms, but he actually came up to me a few times and we'd chat about certain parts and he goes, well, is this even possible? Am I going to make this into a business at one point? And I said, well, stick at it, see what happens. In the end, it became Arrow Farms, which is good. He couldn't tell me all the, all his trade secrets, obviously, but periodically he'd say, yeah, don't do that. He's not telling me what they're doing, but at least he's giving me a hint. Yeah, you, you don't want to ever do that. That's bad. Yeah. And you'll, you'll in six months from now, you'll be happy that I told you this. And I'm like, okay, I'm not going to do that, obviously. And so those are the, the great moments that we need because blowing millions of dollars and wasting things is not beneficial. And I, I find the industry is exceedingly good about that. Um, the historical growers are also quite good about that. Sometimes they have no clue why they're doing it. And but that's expected, but they say, well, that's not a very good solution. Let's do something else. And I, I'm happy with that. It seems to be when the big Wall Streets got in and invested large amounts of money, then they don't want to tell anybody because they think everything's a trade secret. But back to cannabis isn't mythical. It is just a plant and we have to treat it as such. And so it's not everything isn't all a trade secret. It's right. It's it's agriculture. I mean, it's what we've been exactly. doing for 10,000 years. And the only reason we're able to feed ourselves now is because I'm sure we all work together. We share tools, we share ideas. Yeah. We, you know, I know farmer, you know, one of the things that I fell in love with farming in the first place was because the farmers were working together and sharing ideas. And if one one farmer had a crop failure, they could rely on their colleague to fill an order and vice versa. And I really want to see that camaraderie in our industry. And even those, you know, coming together in consortiums to have, you know, to develop a list of common problems and challenges that everyone is having together that could then help to fund or drive at least interest um, and research uh, at the academic level, at the USDA, uh, the equivalent of the Canadian DA, yeah. <laughs> I don't know, the Department of Agriculture, because, you know, I, I want this industry to succeed both in cannabis and in, in vegetable and ornamental production. Um, and I feel like we could accelerate that growth, accelerate that success if we worked more together to solve this challenge together. And at the rate that climate change is going and the rate at which we're gonna lose our salad bowl status here in California any minute, it feels like we need to solve this problem fast. Agreed. Yeah. Yeah, we have to work together. Like I, I'm, the academics that were reasonably good at working with each other, the industries that typically work with me are quite good at working together, at least at some base level, even if it's just flowing through me and they understand that's one of the paths that has to happen. Um, there's some that say, no, no, I'm going to go it alone. And it's more difficult if you, if you have billion dollars, you're Elon Musk or the Jeff Bezos is fair enough. You can try to do court that path, but as a whole, farmers typically don't do that. So agreed. 
How do you predict the industry is going to evolve over the next five to 10 years? Are we moving in the right direction? What's the research that we're going to start to see coming out here soon, hopefully? Well, there's been some fairly large funded grants down in the States that have been looking at LED lighting and some of the controlled environment. I'm amazed at how many universities are hiring either extension agents or researchers, even some small colleges. I see a few new ones. Like I'm going to pick on UC Davis, but I would never say they had a controlled environments area that they worked on. Now they're, they're hiring people. So they're going to become one of the, yeah, they're going to become one of the players. And I'm like, okay, that's exciting. I get to go to California more. And and I I know some of these two people too, that have been hired. So, Hey, I have friends there now too, on top of all this, instead of just the, it used to be kind of the East East coast kind of area. That was the main focus, Uh, Netherlands and other places that are scattered around, but it, it seems to be pushing out into this. And it's partially because they see it as a growth area. There's demand of the rooftop greenhouse type systems, um, community gardens and such. And it seems to be a resurgence of agriculture. I always joked when we were in the 80s and the 90s that agriculture was a four-letter word that no one wanted to speak. And then now it seems to be that there's still environmentalists that still think we're destroying the planet. Fair enough. I can't win those over. But the rest of them say, well, this is part of the solution. One of the, I'm plugging a TV movie, which was called Kiss the Ground, but all of a sudden they started showing agriculture as a positive light. This is how we can save the planet, where we're going to care about the soil and we care about the plants. Um, They were here long before we were. And even if humans destroy the planet for human occupation, the plants are still going to be here. Uh, People who say it's going to be the end of the world. Well, no, it's going to be the end of the world for humans plants are going to have no problem continuing on and will do their own thing. And if they're the ones controlling us, they'll maybe push another organism to become the, the dominant species that takes over kind of mentality. <laughs> A little bit of guy hypothesis here, right? I love uh, that. <laughs> and so we see all these places falling in and the small communities and everyone seems to care about it. So it's, it's going in an area that I think people care about. Mm. And it gives me hope for that. We know that we're becoming more energy efficient. We care about the carbon. We care about water utilization rates. We, there's, every time I seem to be opening up new papers, a new buzz term like water utilization rate. I'd ta- been taught once, but most people really didn't care in the controlled environment. Now we care about it. We actually want to track these numbers. Uh, we're, we're discovering better ways to do HVAC. We're discovering the values of selecting specific wavelengths for LEDs. So we're, we're discovering all these things and we're trying to push on that. We're also gaining community understanding. So there's different initiatives, which is trying to tie in utilities, growers, and researchers all together. And we've had it like the NCR 101 was one of the early ones for that. But we also have the ones that are trying to do, we're trying to set up a group known as SEEDS. So it's a controlled environment, agricultural development, similar to like LEED certification. Another one, which is kind of the, the RII, so Resource Institute, which is trying to use it for more of a utility standpoint. And there's a lot of other ones that I'm finding that are doing this. And so can we track this and is this beneficial? I don't want it to be so onerous that people can't get into it. There's mom and pop operations and the, the, the inner city people should be able to start setting these things up. But I, I like to say that a person who's sh- um, growing plants in a shipping container is just as much as a farmer as somebody who grew up on my farm with, with thousands of acres. Still takes the same dedication. You have to understand the plants. And 
I actually give the person in the inner city a bit more props because they had to start from scratch. There's a historical knowledge of field-based agriculture that's been passed down for thousands of years, but the, the inner city ones are harder to pull off and they're getting conflicting information. So how do we try to clean this up? So the, some of the ag extension agencies are now starting to push into this area and trying to support those kind of people. I won't say they're there yet, partially because we just don't have the knowledge base to provide to them, but we're building to that. So I see this as all positive. That's a really amazing point about inner city and urban agriculture versus traditional field agriculture and that historical knowledge. So Mark, last question for you. What do plants crave? There's two ways toward this. The one is they want attention. I'm using that in the coarse term, not in the fine term that it's like a kid who wants people to pay attention to them. They, they want to get what they need. So they need the water, they need the light, and they need the attention that people are paying attention to them. So this is back to everything I've talked about. They're manipulating us someone. So the, if we can provide them what they need, they will keep doing what we need for them. And is it us doing it to them or vice versa? And so they want that kind of paying attention. And anybody who's grown bonsai, they're well aware of this. Like the bonsai people take it to the extreme and they know when that you're when they're behaving properly or not. And I'm not meaning the plant, I'm meaning the person's behaving properly, right? So so there's a bit of an attention part. Ultimately, if we want to go through the more, the simple thing is plants just want to be able to be, be able to go through their life cycle and reproduce and carry on on the world. So I have to, I have to say that both. So we have to provide them an environment that they can thrive, but then we also have to pay attention to them and be able to provide that environment so they can thrive. So that'd be my my short answer. Nice, nice. I want to talk to you about so many different things. We, we might have to have another conversation in the near future, but I really appreciate the interview. I'm going to end with a handful of rapid fire questions. Uh, I just want you to answer in, you know, in, in maybe one or two sentences. You can expand if you want to. I feel like I already know the answer to number one, though. So uh, are you ready? Sure. Okay. Number one, are plants introverts or extroverts? I'm going to say they're introverts. Yeah? yeah. Okay. Even though they want attention and they're manipulating us, they're not that kind of an extrovert. So actually almost all introverts I know want to be recognized and they want to be paid attention to. They just don't want to be like, I have two in my house. So my daughter and my son, which are polar opposites, they both need recognition and they both need it, but they're subtly different. The one it's obvious because they're always he's always talking. He's always in basically maybe not quite in your face because that sounds negative, but he's always omnipresent. The other one will snuggle up next to you and wants your recognition and, and is absorbing the information. And the plants are more like that. They're snuggled up next to you and just trying to absorb what they need. Nice, nice. Okay. Can controlled environment agriculture create a more sustainable world? I say yes. And I know a lot of people don't agree with that one. My big argument on this is if we use NASA technology, we theoretically could have 2 trillion people living on planet earth with our land base. Energy becomes the limiting factor. What's the NASA technology that will allow us to. That's that breadboard project at Hangar L. If you look at what their yield was based on their yield productivity, 
Um, if you look at it from the Dutch perspective, they can even not that high. They're less than that, but we could pack in a lot. So the question is, how do we want to distribute this? We're not going to go to a trillion people. I'm not expecting that by any stretch, but it reduces our overall ecological footprint if we go to a more productive food system is the short answer. Yeah. So do we want to go down that path and how do we want to control that? Obviously, we're not going to do all of it, but there is some benefits from it. And that's an ongoing debate that people are willing to have. Okay. What controlled environment agriculture crop would pair best with maple syrup? Hmm. I'm going to actually say, I want to say blueberries, but that's because I'm a blueberry addict. Um, <laughs> and there's very few, syrup, I like it. Yeah, there's very few people that actually do that. Blueberry pancakes get syrup on them. Yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll choose that one. I, I'm good with blueberry. I know that there's some people that are pushing strawberries hard, but I, my, in my household, all my kids and my wife eat all the strawberries, so I get left with the blueberries. But I like them more than strawberries, so I'll stick with blueberries. <laughs> so you're picking a berry crop that was con- that was grown in a greenhouse in Montreal with some maple syrup over the top of that? I'll do that, yes. Okay, awesome. That's, that, uh, the, that's- the funny thing is, other than research, I know nobody who grows um, blueberries internally. I don't other know than either. I know yeah. strawberries, right? But yeah. not blueberries yet. I, I've, I've done it in the, in the lab. So that's why I'm using it is because I know I can do it. It's just most people don't do it. I mean, blueberries are a bush, right? Yeah, they're a little shrub. So that does seem like it would be a, a little challenging to grow indoors. It takes a lot of space. You, you could pack them in quite tight if you wanted to. So okay. I knew I, I, there was a guy... Washington State, who was growing um, actually cherries in a, as a tree inside of a controlled a greenhouse space. That is cool. And when he showed the data, I was like, wow, that's so cool. Are Whether they like not, dwarf tre- cherry trees? Or are they no, like he, he, he put a big greenhouse over a, an actual cherry tree. So I was like, okay, that's cool. His yields were impressive, and he, he didn't have to worry about the, the, the splitting or anything else. The problem was is that maybe the infrastructure was – it worked one out of every five years. Like when they have a really bad crop, he would win. But for the four years, he just gets destroyed in price. So you just can't be economical out of it. Interesting. Well, that might be how we grow a lot of our stone fruits and fruit trees in general in the future. Um, if we can't grow them here in California, we'll have to grow them in greenhouses in Washington. So here we come, future. We're the future, Mark. Excellent. It's awesome. been fun. Thank you so much, Mark. Uh, I really appreciate it. Lots of great information and scientific knowledge in this conversation. All right. Well, thank you so much, Mark. Have a great evening and we'll talk soon. Okay. Thank you so much, Maddie. Thanks. Bye. Bye. That was Dr. Nadia Saba interviewing Dr. Mark Lefstrud from McGill University for our series, What Plants Crave. Tune in next week for our next episode. Dr. Saba will be speaking to Angie Fulton, lead cultivator at Aurora Medical. I'm Dennis Wadan, and this has been The Doctor is In with Dr. Nadia Saba. Thank you for listening.